0: Hello everyone and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke, thanks for joining me. In today's edition of Work With Purpose, two of IPA's outstanding future leaders, Megan Aponte-Payne and Isabel Franklin, go head-to-head with Dr Ken Henry and Dr David Gruen, who themselves are two of Australia's most outstanding public servants in recent times. Isabel and Megan took the opportunity to speak to Ken Henry and David Gruen after IPA's recent event, Public Policy Lessons from the Global Financial Crisis. In this conversation, they explored with Ken Henry and David Gruen about their time leading organisations through crises, both the current COVID-19 pandemic and the 2007-2008 global financial crisis. It's a wonderful Conversation and it begins with the voice of Isabel Franklin. Please enjoy.
1: I'd like to begin today's podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the lands on which we're meeting on today, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. The Work with Purpose series was launched in early April last year in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The series has provided an insight into how the APS has responded to the pandemic, with leaders from across the public service joining the program. And today we're joined by two very special guests, Dr. David Gruen, Australia's Statistician and former Deputy Secretary of PM&C, as well as Australia's G20 Sherpa, and Dr. Ken Henry, former Secretary of the Treasury who chaired the Major Future Tax System Review, which came to be known as the Ken Henry Tax Review, a document credited with shaping Australian tax policy over the following decade. My name is Isabel Franklin and I'm an advisor at the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. I'm joined by Megan Aponte-Payne, who works at the Australian Trade and Investment Commission we are both on IPA's Future Leaders Committee. Now I'd like to hand over to Megan who will begin today's podcast.
2: Thanks so much Isabel and so today I wanted to talk to you both about leadership in crises particularly as you have both led agencies during different crises both the GFC and COVID and I was wondering if we could start by you um, telling us a bit about those different those two crises and what the main differences were and how that perhaps affected the way that you've responded in your ways in your in leading organizations through them. I'll start with you David or Ken I don't mind.
3: I'm happy either way. (laughs) Then you go first. Okay so I was in very different roles in the two crises so I was um, uh, one of the deputies uh, to Ken in the global financial crisis in charge of macroeconomics Uh, and so I think in terms of the role of leadership, you get consumed by providing advice to the government in the crisis, and there is a sense in which um, for, for members of staff who are not sitting around the table or intimately involved in what's going on, um, things move very quickly, and it's perhaps a bit of bewildering for them to see their senior leaders... Uh, saying things that they had not seen in previous circumstances, because the the, the circumstances of the crisis demand alternative um, uh, remedies, and so I think pe- that I think there's no question that more junior people in Treasury during the global financial crisis actually found that quite. Uh, for some of them, they found that uh, a bit um, disorienting. Mm. Um, in terms of. Uh, my role running the Bureau of Statistics. I think the experience with the global financial crisis was actually quite important because I had a feeling at the end of February that I had not had uh, any time before other than in the global financial crisis, that something big was coming, that it was building. It wasn't yet here, but, but the signs were very clear. And in the role that I was, I thought we had a unique opportunity to do something that, um, that we hadn't done before, which was to provide uh, really quick information uh, for policymakers. And having come from the centre, I kind of knew the sort of things that people would want to know about. And so I thought it was just very clear that uh, we, we needed to get on our bikes and, and actually start doing things we hadn't done before. And there was a huge amount of activity in March uh, to get and April to get these things up and running. And I think that was very energising for the organisation. I think the organisation found it very um, uh, uh, empowering to be seen to be doing things that were so useful and to get the sort of positive feedback we got through the, through that period. Mm.
4: Yeah. Uh, uh, reflecting on the global financial crisis, um, we in central agencies, and I'm talking principally about Treasury and... Um, the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet Finance, um, uh, but then in uh, coordination with the Reserve Bank of Australia. Um, we probably had all we needed in order to, or at least we thought we did, in order to grapple with the dimensions of the problem, and in order to be able to provide high-level advice to government on, in a timely way about um, what, what might need to be done Um, As soon as you get to um, the implementation of policy responses, though, you realise that you're without partners, that Mm. you desperately need. Mm. Um, And one of the learnings from the global financial crisis was that, uh, for us anyway, and I know David shares this view, that um, we probably waited a little too long to bring in the, the partners that we needed and by the way bringing those partners in earlier even if you think of them as implementation partners bringing them in earlier would have helped us in the conception of the advice as well mm-hmm. um, but then you know there's another thing that nags at me when i think about this and i, I don't know whether it, it it's a feature of the covid pandemic or not but there back then in the global financial crisis there was a bit of an obsession with secrecy as well mm. And when you're trying to... And David referred earlier to some of the younger people uh, in in Treasury probably being a little bewildered about what was going on. As a leader, you want to be able to sit down with the people who are a bit bewildered. In fact, you want to sit down with all of your people and explain to them what's going on and then have an open conversation, you know, and allow them to push back and, and discuss what's happening. Um, and your ability to do that is compromised, not only by the speed of events that mm. David referred to, but also mm. by this obsession with secrecy, yeah. Mm, yeah. you know. And, and in the Treasury in in, um, in the global financial crisis, we had a really big setback um, when it turned out that one of our own, one of the, one of the Treasury people was actually feeding um, information to the then leader of the opposition, mm. and the leader of, the then leader of the opposition was using that information to embarrass the government mm. in the parliament. Mm. Um, and, that, and that really hampered our ability mm. as departmental leaders to be able to have that sort of open, inclusive discussion um, with, the, with the people in the department. Mm. It's why, um, reflecting on it, it, it is why organizational culture is is just so important. You know, there, there have to be things that everybody in the organization can rely upon all the time. Rules of behavior um, that, not written down necessarily, but rules of behavior mm-hmm. that you can just rely on. You don't you don't have to worry about these things. You know that um, information will be uh, protected appropriately and so on. And when that's called into question, or when you get a shock, you know, um, it, it, uh, right in the middle of a crisis is about the worst time it can happen, but that is when these things tend to happen. Yeah. Um, it's very destabilising uh, and it, it just... Um, it makes the job of leaders, not just leaders, though. It makes everybody's job just so much more mm. difficult. Mm.
1: Absolutely. I think you've both touched on this a little bit already, but I really wanted to draw out from both of you during your time leading through crises when they are such uncertain times, how do you give your staff within the organisation the certainty they need to be able to do their jobs really well?
3: So, um, I, I, I can talk about the current crisis and our response in the in the uh, Bureau of Statistics to that. Because, um, as, as I said earlier, we were trying to do things we'd never done before. And that involved quite a bit of rearranging of uh, taking people off some things and putting them on more more um, high priority things. But at the same time, and this was true right across the public service, everybody was being moved out of offices and being sent home. And so there was a lot of disruption, and there was a huge amount of uncertainty. And my reaction to that was not to try and tell people that I knew exactly what was going to happen, because I didn't. But uh, it was to have regu- very regular communications. So we had uh, virtual stand-ups. Um, uh, at one point on a weekly basis, just saying to people, this is where we are, we don't know what's coming, but this is what we're doing at the moment, and having a, a, an opportunity for people to basically ask as many questions as they wanted to, and just to to share with them the level of knowledge we had, which was, they were surprised to learn, there were plenty of things we didn't know and didn't understand, and I think uh, levelling with people about that, I think that had a very... Um, and and the fact that you're willing to answer questions even if they were awkward. uh, I think that made a big difference and certainly the reaction we got when we did pulse surveys was that people were extremely pleased to be talked to at that, on that basis and for leaders to say, we don't know where this is going. This is what we're doing at this stage, but we'll get back to you.
4: Yeah, I think that's a perfect answer actually. Um very well said, if I <laughs> might say so. Um, um, I guess that was the kind of idea that was floating around in my head, but I hadn't actually put it into words. Um, but th- there's one other thing that, um, um, that no, actually, now it's gone out of my head. The other thing it I was going to it'll talk return. about. Would, yes, it, it will. So, um, um, the, but the importance of being, oh, oh, I do know what it is. The importance of, of being open um, mm. and honest of leaders being open and honest and being authentic, uh, you know, I think that cannot be um, overstated. Um, um, But then um, the second thing is, and it's closely related to it, is leaders ensuring that they don't have unreasonable expectations of what can be delivered. Mm. Now, in a crisis, that's really, really difficult. Because chances are the government is going to have quite unrealistic expectations of what can be delivered. Mm. Um, And the leaders in the agencies are going to feel under enormous pressure Mm. to have the agency deliver to meet Mm. those expectations. Um, It's very difficult for anybody to say no to a prime minister on anything. Mm. Very difficult. But there are times when, of course, it has to be said. And it's only the agency head that can say it. Sit down and say, I'm sorry, but this is not going to happen. And it can't happen for the following reasons. Mm. Sometimes it goes... Sometimes that's not feasible. And instead what has to happen is that the senior person in the agency has to do a lot of the work themselves. Mm. Mm. Um, They have to they have to be the person who just sits there and explains mm. things that, in normal circumstances, they wouldn't be doing. Mm. You mm. Know? Sure. But that's in order to shield, and it has to be done, in order to shield people in the agency from the unrealistic expectations of their political masters. Now, not, I'm not blaming the political mm. masters. I understand it. You know, if you're in that crisis mm. situation, of course, you're going to have uh, unreasonable um, mm. expectations. And then I think the third thing, and this is the most difficult thing, um, is finding some downtime for people.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
4: That is the most difficult thing. When everybody's under the pump, Mm. um, how do you find downtime, Mm. particularly for those people who who are under the most pressure? I don't think we know how to do this, honestly. But when I say we, I'm talking about humans. I just don't think that humans... In collectives, really know how to do mm. this,
2: and I and I imagine it becomes more difficult when you don't know how long the crisis is going to last. Exactly, take.
4: Mm. exactly. It's not like a game of netball or something. You know, it's not uh, where you know for how long it's going. The period of intensity is going to last, um, and 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 you can therefore swap people in and out. And you know, um, it's not like that at all. Um, and, and in fact, um, often when The crisis starts, and David has mentioned two that he saw coming. I remember that one of the early conversations that we had, David, about in the global financial crisis, you know, about where the unemployment rate might go, Mm. Mm. and and it was a really frank conversation, and um, you know, just admitting to one another that this, you know, we could end up with an unemployment rate. Well above eight percent, maybe nine percent, who knows mm. um, and, um, and then pulling that back and then um, even even once you got your head around that and the dimension of that, you didn't know uh, what the issue was the crisis issue was that was going to be consuming the prime minister's attention the next morning. Mm. Uh, we, we had to deal... I mean, it was often described, and the Prime Minister himself Rudd right at the time described it as something akin to a rolling national security crisis, you know. Mm. That was because things just kept popping up. Mm, yeah. So you didn't know what sort of expertise you needed. You didn't know which people in the department you were going to have to call on at some uh, outrageously late hour of the night in order to have something on the Prime Minister's desk by 7 o'clock the next morning or mm. something. You just didn't know. It was mm. just so much uncertainty. And... Um, but if, you know, if I look back on it, um, of course it was not the case that everybody was under the pump to the same degree uh, for the, with the same intensity mm. for the same period of time and some people were, you know, just, just wrung out mm. by the mm. end of it mm. and it would be good to be able to do things differently but I just don't know.
2: Mm. It's hard to know how to do them differently. Mm. It's, mm. it's really difficult. Mm. I think it's
3: also hard to know who really is suffering. It, I mean, some, some people will come forward and say, but for a lot of people, they'll bottle it up. Oh, yeah. and, and others are doing just fine because they're, 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 they're looking after themselves and they're, they're, you know, they're working hard, but they're looking after themselves and others are, are really suffering. And sometimes you don't find out till afterwards.
2: Mm. And I imagine one mm. of the differences perhaps between the GFC for the public service and COVID is the GFC probably involved the centrals most, mm. but COVID, I feel, in many ways, everybody has mm. been under mm. the pump. I mean, mm. the defence force mobilised mm. people, sure. health services, Australia, ATO, and so you can't even borrow staff from a from a department that perhaps hasn't been as under the pump. And mm. as um, as a, as a mm. final question to both of you, I wanted to to bring together what you've talked about in terms of communication and being really open and honest. With, with staff in particular and answering the hard questions and also um, weave in the fact that you're both very eminent economists and talk about communicating economics because I think one of the the really uh, positive things we've seen through COVID is the communicating of the health Mm -hmm. advice and I think it's been really obvious how it's affected people and so Mm. they've been able to respond but I imagine that through the GFC for a lot of people it was a lot more theoretical they didn't really understand what an international banking crisis meant for their mother Mm -hmm. So how would you, take, taking those lessons and moving forward, how would you look to perhaps better communicate economics to the wider public?
4: Well, I think there's a prior question, though. There's a prior question of whether you have a license to do so mm-hmm. or authority to do so. Um, you know, I, I gave a lot of speeches during the global financial crisis trying to do just that. Mm. Um, and I was heavily, very heavily criticised mm. for that. I was accused of um, having become politicised, and you know, people mm. wanted to write the story that the treasury was not independent from government. Mm. You know, because I was out there trying to explain government policy. It, the, the, and by the way, there's a um, there's a bit of a. Um, a bit of mythology that surrounds um, that concept of explaining government policy. I remember I used to, we used to tell people before they went up to Senate Estimates, and I'm sure it still happens, if you're asked to comment on government policy, you must say, well, I can explain government policy, but I can't do any more than that. OK, so you're in the middle of a crisis, and the policy, you are there explaining government policy, and you get the hard question. Um, which is designed to um, uh, make the policy look bad. You know, that's the whole purpose Mm -hmm. of the question, to make the policy look dumb, and you're in the middle of a crisis. Mm -hmm. The worst outcome is that the policy looks dumb, Mm -hmm. right? So the distinction between explaining government policy and defending government policy, that distinction collapses Mm -hmm. in a crisis. Mm -hmm. Therefore, if a public servant is going to appear in public, Explaining the government's response mm. to a crisis, the public servant is going to have to defend mm. the government's response to the crisis. And does and so the question for the public service is: uh, Does that put the public service leader in an impossible position? Mm. It's a big question for the public service. Um, so yeah, I think there should have been even more of that explaining of the economics and the finance and so on and why the government had to do what the government had to do. And it would have been good if that could have been done by senior officials, people who are expert in their field. Um, but. It really would have brought that question into very
3: sharp relief, Mm. that question.
2: And do you think we've learnt that, for example, through what we've seen with the Department of Health through the COVID crisis?
3: So I think there's a distinction to be drawn between health experts and economic experts. And the distinction I would draw is that um, uh, the the public is willing to accept the professional expertise of a health expert and although there are going to be community members, there are going to be members of the community who will disagree with it, that is very fringe. So um, when Brendan Murphy stands up, or for that matter, uh, other chief medical officers, and says something about, um, about uh, a pandemic, it's accepted as, the, as an expert opinion. In economics, there's much more Con, much more contention. Much, it's regarded as much more reasonable for a commentator in in a in a, a newspaper or or, a, or on television to take that person on and present an alternative view. You do not see mainstream, mm-hmm. at least I haven't seen mainstream media take on. Uh, a health expert and say, well, actually, he's got it completely... Now, that, now you can probably find the odd person who'll do that, but the, but it's much more fringe to do that, whereas in economics, it's regarded as fair game. Mm.
2: Do you think that's because a, a general member of the pu- public, for example, has regular contact with a GP, and so they've developed more trust?
3: I think it's also because because health is regarded as a more, more uh, kind of... Um, uh, hard science and and economics is regarded more as a kind of a, a, as more as more um uh up for grabs.
1: Mm.
4: Oh, economics has always been like that of course. Yeah, yeah. Actually it's one of its attractions.
3: You know, <laughs> no, that, I agree. that you get I agree. these
4: crazy philosophers arguing over things that don't really matter but seem to.
3: Yeah yeah no no I agree. I agree. It might be p- and it has huge public policy implications so Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Mm. True.
2: Look That's been fascinating, and I think we'd like to go on for hours, but we are conscious that we've uh, taken quite a bit of your time, and we've been very lucky. So, thank you very much for your insights today. I think our listeners will be um, excited and hopefully inspired to maybe go and study economics as well. Thank you very much. That
0: was a pleasure. It's all right. Yeah, it's fun. Thanks. So there you go—a great conversation. Megan Aponte Payne, Isabel Franklin, IPA's future leaders speaking to a couple of Australia's great public service leaders in Dr. Ken Henry and Dr. David Gruen. A great privilege, really, for Megan and Isabel to be speaking to such uh, distinguished Australian public service and what great advice they gave uh, to the future leaders through that interview. Thank you for coming back once again. We really do appreciate your support of Work With Purpose. It really does make a great difference to the way that we put the program together. Uh, A big thanks to IPA for their ongoing support and also to the Australian Public Service Commission. If you do see the social media promotion for the program as it comes through your feed, please, a share, a like, or indeed the gold standard, a review, if you would please review the program in your favourite podcast podcatcher it will help for the program to be found. And indeed, the numbers keep growing. So we're very pleased with that. So thanks again for all of your support. Thanks again to the future leaders. And thanks again to Dr. Ken Henry and Dr. David Gruen for making time available for today's discussion. That's it for another episode of Work With Purpose. We'll be back at the same time in a fortnight. But for the moment, it's bye for now.
4: Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission.